I was made aware of a show that I can scarce admit to knowing about now called Temptation Island. It is a reality show that it seems like should never been made and should definitely not have lasted five seasons. But let me read you the description from the website about uh, what it is. So this is, I, I don't know what channel does it, but this is their description. In this social experiment, it always sounds better when you call it a social experiment, by the way. Four couples at a crossroads in their relationship put their love to the test by giving single life a trial, a try. On the Hawaiian island of Maui, they take a break from each other while living in separate houses with other singles to discover if there's another partner with whom they are more compatible. In the end, will the couples leave together? Will they leave with one of the island's tempters? Or will they break up and go home alone? Whatever the outcome, there'll be plenty of drama along the way. And so, apparently, five seasons of this lasted because people want to watch the drama of people, couples, putting themselves through um, temptations on Temptation Island. Apparently, they did have one rule that you couldn't have children if you're going to go on this show. So good for them for <laughs> drawing that line. It's interesting in that I, I just can't even imagine putting yourself in that situation. Oh, my marriage isn't going so well. Let me go to an island full of really hot people and see how that goes. If I really love my wife, then I will stay true to her. Right? I guess that's the premise, right? That why they have this show. But it's interesting in that in some ways, it's this very strange microcosm of temptations we face every day. No, we don't. I, don't, I hope none of you are doing this. Testing your faithfulness to your significant other, whether married or boyfriend or girlfriend, by, hey, let me go on a bunch of dates with you know, someone else and see what happens. But we face temptations that sometimes we put ourselves into quite often. And what's interesting, and, and you'll see this play out in the sermon, is it's a really hard time trusting your significant other when you feel like your needs are not met in a marriage or a relationship otherwise. It's hard to trust your significant other when maybe the other person or the people around you question your love for them. And it's also hard to trust your significant other when we face fears of suffering in a relationship. Everyone gets married because they hope it's just all happiness and joy and gladness. No one signs up for marriage in order to suffer. And even the fear of that suffering can often lead to people putting themselves in bad situations. Spiritual warfare. Today's spiritual warfare part two. And there's this strange uh, analogy, similarity, in that in our relationship with God, it is hard for us to trust God when we feel like our needs are not met. It is hard to trust God when we feel like people or others or Satan or ourselves are questioning our faith in God. And it is hard to trust God when either we are suffering ourselves or even in fear of having to suffer. And so we come to this text uh, in Matthew 4 where we see Jesus being tempted by Satan. And again, last week we had looked at spiritual warfare from the perspective of Revelation, the, the, the woman who gave birth to the child against the great red dragon. And we saw that there is hope in the midst of war 
because of Christ's rule, Christ's victory, and Christ's protection. And we find, again, this very, I, mean, I don't know if you ever asked this question, why does this happen so early in Jesus' ministry? I mean, literally, what had happened was Jesus was baptized by the Holy Spirit, and God the Father says in chapter 3, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. And then right after that, he goes to the wilderness and is tempted by Satan. The timing seems curious. Why does it happen so early? And we'll see why in a moment. And what we're going to do today is we'll, we'll look at the significance of Jesus being tempted at that particular time, but also the nature of those temptations and what that teaches us as people living today. But we'll see, hopefully, the main, this main idea that we are to trust God and our belovedness in times of temptation, to trust God and our belovedness in times of temptation. So let me just read verse 1 and 2 again. Just It sets up... Um, what this account is about. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. So these 40 days that are talked about are supposed to mirror Israel's 40 years wandering in the wilderness. And it was supposed to bring to minds, particularly for the Jewish audience of the time, um, all the historical accounts, essentially, of Israel's failure to be faithful to God as they wandered through the wilderness. And we are to remember not only the failures, but also God's gracious deliverance and provision for the Israelites in the wilderness as they struggle to be faithful to God. These remembrances of Israel's failures are meant to be contrasted with what we will see, and you, you know the end of the story here, contrasted with Jesus' faithfulness. Now, Jesus was the God-man. He was fully divine and fully human. And yet Satan was trying to tempt Jesus to use his divine powers in order to meet his human needs. And furthermore, to, to tempt uh, Jesus to essentially weaken himself in the role that he'd been given as the sinless savior. Satan knew, I think, or had hints of what was God's plan here, and he was trying to have Jesus be unfaithful to the plan that God and him had formed from eternity past. And yet somehow, what Satan intended for evil through these temptations, God used to strengthen Jesus for his role as the Messiah. It's fascinating that after 2,000 years, that still it is commonly accepted that it is 40 days without food that is about as long as humans can go without food, without and then without incurring permanent damage. People have gone longer, certainly, but um, that's usually the recommendation is to go no longer than that. And so Jesus, again, as fully man, certainly would have been very, very hungry at this point. The longest I have personally fasted is 40 hours, and I was starving, famished by then. Now, I understand your body, you know, kind of gets used to starvation and not eating, but I'm assuming after 40 days, you're really ready for a cheeseburger and fries and pizza and fried chicken and whatever. Um, our family's been watching Survivor a lot, and it's interesting to watch people who are really hungry gorge themselves and then get sick because, you know, their bodies are not used to it. But that's how hungry you are, right? You're like, I know I shouldn't eat all of this fried chicken, but I'm going to. So the first temptation we see, though, as we move on is we see that the temptation is essentially this. Satan is wanting Jesus and us to be tempted in this way. Don't trust God in your needs. 
Don't trust God in your needs. Verse 3, And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But Jesus answered, It is written, But man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. You have to notice how sneaky and crafty Satan is here. He's always twisting truth in order to tempt us. It's certainly true that Jesus is the Son of God. It certainly is true that Jesus still had the divine power to turn those stones into bread if he wanted to. But Jesus' task of redeeming humankind from sin and death involved him living faithfully to God and sinlessly as a human being. Satan was tempting Jesus to take care of his human needs through his divine powers. Satan tempted Jesus by implying, okay, if you really are the Son of God, why should you go hungry? Why would you be lacking in anything? I think most of us know we are weakest in spiritual warfare when we feel we are in need. Whether it's we're we're hungry, we're tired, we're thirsty, we're lonely, we're sad. In those moments of our weakness, there is a test of faith involved. There's a test of whether we will trust God to provide or whether we will go to whatever ends that we have to meet those needs ourselves. Do we provide for ourselves or do we trust God to provide? Do we seek some kind of instant gratification or do we trust God to be the one who fulfills and we wait for that fulfillment? Now, the temptation is different for us than it is Jesus here. Jesus had to withhold from using his divine powers to turn the stones into bread. He could have provided for himself if he wanted to. Most of us do not have the power to zap the things we want into being. But there are times where we can go meet our needs ourselves. And we should go do that, yet with hearts full of trust as God, the one who's providing. Yet there's also times where our needs are not met. In those moments where we find our needs not met, what do we do? Do we trust God to provide in the end? Or do we find some way to feed that need that may or may not be honoring to God? And in this case, Jesus knew in order for him to honor the plan that his Father in heaven and him formed, that he had to stay true to God by not turning those stones into bread. Trust God and your belovedness in times of temptation. The second temptation is more interesting. It is this temptation to prove your trust in God. Verse 5, Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. In the second temptation, it is like Satan is challenging Jesus. Say, okay, so you say you trust God. Now prove it. And again, Satan is crafty. He sees that Jesus is quoting scripture to him. So he quotes some scripture back to Jesus, right? The pinnacle of the temple is is probably the southeast corner of the temple, which is about 300 feet from the bottom of the Kidron Valley. So imagine Jesus... 300 feet up high, and Satan is saying, hey, just throw yourself down. You're the son of God. 
Scripture says you'll be protected. Go ahead, do it. Hey, maybe a bunch of people will see and they'll see that you are the Messiah. Anyone jumping from that height would surely die. And if Jesus had listened to Satan and tried to prove his father's love for him, prove that he was the son of God, prove that he trusted God, then it would no longer be having faith in God the Father. It would be testing the Father instead. By listening to Satan, Jesus would have turned this test of faith into a test of God, a testing of his father's love. Maybe you know from your own life, from your family's friends' lives, how things go when you test the love of someone you know, when you play games in that way to, to have them prove that they love you. No one likes that. No one likes those kinds of games. And yet this kind of thing is easy for us to do as humans. The need to prove something to someone often comes from that pride within our hearts. Proving that you trust God really betrays an insecurity in our faith in God. It makes me think of Hamlet, where Queen Gertrude says inadvertently about herself, the lady doth protest too much, methinks. When we are yelling and screaming about trying to prove our trust and our hope in God, sometimes it comes out of our own insecurity. Once you try to prove your trust in God, you actually can do unintentionally the reverse of showing your lack of faith in God. And I think Satan can also play on that desire to want to be a faithful witness. I need to prove my faith to others so that others may come to know him. Let me prove it to people. Lord Jesus, help me. And so Satan can goad us into this almost prideful way of proving our trust to God instead of resting in God's plan, his sovereignty to work through our faithful witness instead of us protesting so much that he is the living God. It's interesting in that, I don't know if you've thought about this and I've been thinking about it in, actually in the context of coronavirus, but God shows in scripture that he doesn't approve of us acting rashly or putting ourselves in danger unnecessarily. And there have been stories, and these are questions that we as a church may even have to consider. Do you continue gathering in worship as Christians when there's an epidemic going on? When we might be spreading it to each other and outside? Okay, in case I just stoked a bunch of fear very low chance in Iowa still, no confirmed cases in Iowa. This is a conversation that our elders will, will begin to have as we see things develop. Yet it is a question that comes up, not just in coronavirus, but we have to ask this question. When, when do we put ourselves in danger as Christians? I don't know if you remember a story that came out recently where there was a story of a, a Christian missionary who went, I can't remember where, to some, some to trying to reach some tribe and he, he was killed. And so there was all this, okay, of course, in our day-to-day, our -day, social media viral blast. Oh, what an idiot. Oh, those Christians, they're so dumb. Or even Christians saying, oh, he should have prepared better. He just seemed to go so rashly. And there were others like, no, he did prepare himself. He just had such a heart for God. I don't know what the reality was with that particular guy. But legitimate questions to ask. 
When do we put ourselves in danger? What does it mean to be a good steward of, what, of the life that God has given us? Not many of us have been put in such a dramatic test as Jesus had to be led to some high up place and say, prove that you love Jesus and by throwing yourself off this temple. But testing God is much more common than you think. We test the Lord when we ask for things in life that we are not willing to go through the normal means to attain ourselves. Let me say that again. We test God when we ask for things from God when we are not willing to go through the normal means to attain it ourselves. I'll give you an example. If you keep praying for God to make you healthy, but you won't change your diet, you won't eat healthy, you won't seek treatment, you are testing God. If you keep praying, Lord, help me know you so much more. Help me be more intimate with you. But you won't pray. You won't read the Bible. You won't worship with the people of God. You're testing God. God has given you normal means through which to draw close to him. And he promises to work through those. Or think, for those of us are parents, who say, oh, we want to raise our kids in the Lord. We pray for our kids to know the Lord. Yet we won't go through the normal means of teaching our kids what it means to know the Lord, to model to them, to speak of our faith to them. We test God when we do that. We have to use the means that God has given us in this life in order to attain the things that we desire in this world, trusting at the same time that God will provide as we use those means. I think mostly we don't seek those means, often, sometimes just because we're lazy. Sometimes because it's self-protective. Lord, if I try and I fail or you don't deliver, then I'm going to be really disappointed. And we say, well, better not to try then. I don't know why I sounded British then. That was weird. Sometimes it happens. It is when we seek to have our desires met through the normal means that God gives us and continuing to trust God that we show faith in God. God calls us not to test him, but to trust him through the normal means of life. Trust God and your belovedness in times of temptation. Third temptation, perhaps the hardest one to understand. But I'll sum it up in this way. It is, the temptation is that trusting God doesn't mean suffering for God. Trusting God means, uh, that's, not, that's not well put. Trusting God means not suffering for God. Does that make sense? Trusting God means not having to suffer for God. Verse 8, again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God. In him only shall you serve and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. The third temptation on the surface of it seems hard to understand. Jesus is clearly not stupid. Jesus has good theology, and though Satan is described in Scripture as the prince of this world, Jesus surely knew the kingdoms of the world and their glory is not for Satan to offer up and give away willingly, even if it was to Jesus. Jesus knew the kingdoms of the world and their glory are his father's and his. What temptation there 
was there then in this offer of Satan? Once again, what Satan is trying to do is to subvert God's plan of redemption. The temptation for Jesus laid in the fact that his role in God's plan was to live a sinless human life, to suffer and die on the cross for the wrath of God against the sins of the world, and then raise from the dead, ascend to the heavenly throne next to his father. That was the plan. And we know from Scripture, from the Garden of Gethsemane, that Jesus himself was sorrowful and troubled deeply at the thought of having to suffer on the cross. Three times Jesus prayed to his father, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. The temptation for Jesus was trusting his father's will can be done without suffering. Look, this temptation is very real for all of us. And it's quite understandable. No one really likes to suffer. (laughs) It is natural to try to avoid pain. Don't beat yourself up for thinking or feeling that way. The way of suffering is simply not the way it's supposed to be. That is not God's original design for us. And it is why we try to avoid it. But we also have to recognize we live in a fallen and broken world. And what that means is, is suffering is unavoidable. Unavoidable. Degrees of suffering. And we'll go through seasons where it feels like less suffering and some seasons where it feels like great suffering, but it is unavoidable. And the way of suffering is unavoidable in trusting Jesus, in following Jesus. But the thing is, we don't just try to avoid suffering. We fear suffering. And we will determine the way we do life, relate to the world and others out of this fear of suffering. There are a bunch of stuff we won't even consider doing because maybe there will be suffering that comes along with it. In this broken world, the way of suffering is the way of Jesus. We walk the path that our Savior walked. And just as Jesus had to resist the temptation of trusting God without suffering, we too have to resist the temptation of trusting God without suffering. Trusting God that though we may suffer, or perhaps I should say, though we will suffer, that God has promised us glory one day to deliver us from these bodies of death. Trust God and your belovedness in times of temptation. So a quick summary. The temptations go, don't trust God in your needs. Prove your trust of God, and trusting God means not having to suffer. Or to put it slightly differently, because we remember that Jesus heard the words of his Father from heaven, that he was the beloved of God. So the temptation can be instead, if God loves me, then I will not go hungry. If God loves me, then he will deliver me even when I test him. If God loves me, then I will not have to suffer. These are the lies that Satan wants you to believe in. 
These are the lies that involve our trust in God, our sense of his love, our most immediate and deepest needs, our pride, our fears. It encompasses so much of everything that we do in life. And so how do we battle against these lies? What is the answer that Jesus gives us for how to battle against these temptations and these lies? We know that Jesus combated these lies by quoting Scripture back to Satan. Jesus maintained faith in God by trusting in the Word of God rather than listening to the subtle lies of Jesus. I'm assuming you've heard that sermon, so I will not say any more about that. It's clear we need to know the word of God. You cannot tell what is a lie if you don't know the truth of God revealed in the word of God. But the sermon application cannot end there. It cannot just be this mechanical memorizing of scripture to be quoted in times of whatever temptation that you face. Scripture is not magic. Scripture is not magic. Just because you quote it at the right time doesn't mean something will happen automatically. Scripture is God's special revelation of how he is going to redeem humankind to himself through Jesus Christ. So a battle against Satan must involve a deeper appreciation of Jesus and intimacy with Jesus, not just great memory of scriptures, although it is a good thing. Don't hear me wrong. When Jesus fought against Satan, Jesus quoted from Deuteronomy specifically. In the first temptation, Jesus quotes Deuteronomy 8.3, referencing God's tender care, care of Israel through their 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. In the second temptation, Jesus quotes Deuteronomy 6.13, referencing Israel's near stoning of Moses because they were thirsty and because they were thirsty, they would rather go back to being slaves in Egypt. They were rebelling against God because they were thirsty. <laughs> Probably meant more than that, but they were rebelling against God. And in the second temptation, Jesus quotes this to remind them at Mas Massa and Meribah, God in his unwarranted grace to Israel provided living water out of a stone for them because that is the kind of God that we worship and follow. And in the third temptation, Jesus quotes Deuteronomy 6.16, referencing God delivering Israel from wilderness into the promised land with cities and homes and cisterns and vineyards and olive trees that they did not build or plant themselves, that they did not earn for themselves. And so, masterfully, Jesus, in just three references, points us not just to Scripture in general, but to the Gospel specifically. We are reminded through Jesus' quotes that our God tenderly cares for us, that our God graciously provides for us even when we complain and rebel, and that God prepares a place of glory for us that we did not earn. And in the big picture, Jesus reminds us of what he does, that he faithfully and perfectly fights against every temptation that he faced amidst our failure to fight against temptation. Jesus reminds us 
that not only did he live a perfectly sinless life, that he was willing to face his own fear of suffering by suffering and dying on the cross, taking the wrath of his father for the sins of the world. This is the gospel. And he reminds us of both the righteousness he gives to us through faith in him and the way he took our place on the cross. Jesus was the last Adam that did what the first Adam could not do. Jesus was the perfect representative on our behalf. And Jesus provides more than we can ask or imagine compared to Satan's lies that ultimately failed to deliver. Satan will always jip us. Satan will always give us a bad deal. Satan offers us what is not his to offer. Satan offers us fleeting pleasures. Satan offers us cotton candy that will never satisfy. Jesus instead offers us what is rightly his to offer. He offers us to be sons and daughters of God, to be heirs of the throne along with him. Jesus offers us eternal, lasting, fullness of pleasure that we can delight in. Jesus offers us himself, the only one who can satisfy our every desire. Jesus offers us glory by way of suffering. And yet he has walked before us so that we can trust that in our suffering for God, we will find our way to glory in him. Hebrews 4, verse 14 to 16, I'll end, end with, says, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but the one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of God that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. We know what he has to offer because he has walked the way of suffering before us. He knows what it is like to be us. He faced temptations for us and he triumphed over them. Trust God and your belovedness in times of temptation. Let us pray.